At the signal, time will be out of joint. Hello and welcome to Weird Signal, a podcast dedicated to all things eerie, weird and hauntological. I'm Sean and I'm joined today by Don Webb. How's it going, Don? Very good. Glad to be with you. Uh, Don is both a prolific author of weird fiction and a literal honest-to-Satan occultist, uh, former high priest of the Temple of Set. His fiction includes collections such as Through Dark Angles, works inspired by H.P. Lovecraft, and When They Came. His non-fiction works on the occult include Uncle Setnak's Essential Guide to the Left-Hand Path and, most recently, How to Become a Modern Magus. Uh, I've been especially keen on bringing you on because the focus of this season of weird signal podcast has been weird or fucked or cursed america and as your work has this um engagement with uh, a kind of pagan american energy um which i um it, you felt like a really good guest to bring on and i also just you know had a great time reading uh through dark angles last year when i was recovering from covid and i just really thought it'd be really cool to chat with the guy behind all this Oh, well, excellent. I, you know, I think that um, that's one of the most important aspects of American culture is, in fact, its metaphysical side, even though certain political groups like to, you know, claim that it's never existed at all or it's not fundamentally American. Yeah, so we have... Um, so. Uh, as I sent, sent you uh, sent you these um, yesterday, we have uh, some questions uh, prepared, um, but our conversation, I imagine, will go uh, on many interesting interesting tangents down through weird and dark angles. So to so to begin, um, what was your first exposure to weird fiction, and when and why did you decide to start writing? Uh, my first exposure to weird fiction is extremely early. I, I um... I think one of the, the real kind of seminal moments, um, my public library downtown back in Amarillo, Texas, back in, say, 1970, there was an adult section and a kid section, and you couldn't go into the adult section until you were, were 12. Well, one day when I was about 9 or 10, uh, observing that no one was observing me, I darted into the, selection, the, the adult section ran so I wasn't near the door and wandered into the science fiction section where I found um, a book called New Tales of the Cthulhu Mythos. I had no idea what that was at all, but it had a cool cover. And I grabbed that. And then wandering out of uh, the fiction section, I went through the metaphysical section and saw this incredibly huge book called Isis Unveiled. Again, not a clue what it was, but it was the biggest book I'd ever seen. So I grabbed that, snuck back in through the kids' section, went down and checked them out. Um, so sort of simultaneously into the world of Blavatsky and Lovecraft when I was probably just 10. Uh, and they're kind of complementary worlds, obviously. Yes, that which that which in, well, in fact, you have inadvertently answered uh, my second question. But I hope we can uh, go go into this a little with a little bit more detail. Because my second question was, what was your first exposure to the occult, and when and why did you take up the left hand path? Well, my first ex I don't I've been exposed to the occult so many times. I don't know exactly what the first exposure was. Um, as a child, uh, there was a uh, gothic TV show in America called Dark Shadows, and it was on just as school was ending. So if you if you ran home as fast as you could, you could catch the last few minutes of the Dark Shadows show every day. Now, fortunately, the plot was slow was so slow moving that you know really if you just got that last fifteen minutes, it was just as good as watching it. It had vampires, witches, zombies. Um, other dimensional entities, you you name it, ran ran for six or seven years. Um, and I was fascinated. And of course, as a kid, I learned uh, from that, that particular place how to cast a spell. Now, the nice thing about learning about how to cast a spell from TV is that in television, your spells have to be very dramatic and very short because they're, they're nestled between commercials. 
you know, uh, an American TV show, if it's a 30 minute TV show, means there's 22 and a half minutes of action. Um, and so you have to get to the point like that. So as opposed to someone who say learned through uh, Israel Ricardi's The Golden Dawn book or something, these really lengthy incantations, you know, I grew up thinking incantation, three minutes, four minutes tops, you get there, get gone. And really, it's a much better approach in a lot of ways. Now, the question, though, that you're asking is, when was I truly exposed to occultism? And that came in two stages. When I initially went to college, um, 1978, uh, I was exposed to various groups who generally blended their occult practice with drug practice. Um, it was just another reason to get really sort of smashed out of your mind, sort of neo-crowley nonsense. And um, the major effect that had on me was making me fail, fail out of college. So I saw nothing profitable in that. Uh, I tried various forms of neo-shamanism because that was a popular thing in the 70s. And, and I thought... Um, although you wouldn't know this to look at me, you know, my dad's Chickasaw Nation, I had, I had ties to American Indians. I thought maybe I'll find something there. Nothing, nothing really worked for me. So I, uh, I said goodbye to the occult in uh, 1984. Uh, I went to a, what I saw as a place of power. And I just spoke and said, look, uh, I've read all these books. I don't know anything unless I have a live teacher I am not going to proceed. I am just letting you know that universe and, and pretty much just put it aside until uh, 1988. In 1988, uh, I had received uh, an inquiry to write for um, an anthology that was going to be written, going to be brought out about the uh, American witchcraft trials. The, the book never actually happened, but you know, one of those things that writers get this note saying, hey, do you want to write for this? And uh, the guy called me up and said, do you know anything about the witchcraft trials? Of course, since I wanted the commission. I said, well, yes, of course, I am an expert. And then I immediately went that day and checked out every book that I could find on this. Um, it was in October. It was the witching month of 1988. And I spent about an hour doing a timeline of the witchcraft trials. But, you know, how did this start? How were the accusations made? What kind of things were evidence? When did they start thinking of dreams as evidence? Yeah, so I had the list of the whole thing. And I wrote that out, uh, finished it up about 8 o'clock that evening, uh, about 8.30 that evening. And to reward myself, I put my list down. And I turned on the television. And there on the television, there was a show called Satan's Underground. And it was a show by Geraldo Rivera about the dangers of Satanism in America. Uh, and, and it was wonderful because it exactly had every single thing that I had just read about, you know, in the witchcraft trials. I'm like, wow, 300 years and America is still, you know, pathetically superstitious. And they had uh, three or four experts of the occult, I mean, on, you know, occult crime. Um, and they had two live Satanists. Uh, one of them was uh, Dr. Quino. One of them was Anton LaVey's daughter, Zena. And at one point, one of these experts gave this long, rambling speech about Satanism. And he concluded with, Geraldo, I know the address of every Satanist in America, and I know the crimes they have committed. And then one of the Satanists, this guy with his weird eyebrows, looking like, you know, um, Grandpa Munster, right, said in a very calm voice, well, as a law enforcement official, wouldn't your job be to arrest them? First sensible thing I'd heard all night. And immediately I heard Geraldo cut the guy's mic off. I actually heard it click off before he said the next thing he's going to say. And Geraldo went to commercial. And I thought, wow. You know, the guy there that was just a purely freakish looking guy. That was the only sane person I saw. So the next night, I was with some friends and I said, you know, I, I just watched a show and there was this guy named Aquino and he had these you know, weird eyebrows, but he's, he got Geraldo to shut up. I am so impressed. I, I would send him a fan letter if I could. 
And one of my friends gave me the stink eye, and I thought, oh, you know, oh no, I've, I've offended her in some way. And as I was walking out that night, she said, Don, you need to drive me home. Okay, kind of a imperious way to ask for a ride, but all right. And so I put her in my car, and I was driving her to her house, and she said, would you really like to send a letter to Dr. Aquino? Oh, that was a really odd you know, statement. I said, well, yeah, I was really impressed. And she said, I'll be seeing him next week at the International Conclave of the Temple of Set, and I can deliver it to him. And we get to her house. She gets up, goes in the house. And I'm sitting out in the driveway like this. Not because he's an occultist. I'd met scores of occultists. Every occultist I had met smelled funny, did not have a real job, wore so much cheap jewelry that if they were to fall in a lake, they would drown. Here was a woman with a real job. Highly educated. Her husband was a college professor. Very respectable, completely normal. And they're going to see this man at an international gathering. This was shattering to me. So I went and I, I wrote a letter and uh, sent it off and, and, and you know, said to you know, you know how, how impressed I was. And um, I, I did as much research as I could, you know, made some comments about the, the Egyptian cult of Set and uh, told him how I wasn't really interested in joining anything, but joining anything, but I, I wished them well. It seemed like they had a very um, cohesive idea. And, and he wrote back. Uh, he sent me back a letter on uh, Green Beret stationery. Now, the Green Beret is an elite um, army unit. They, they don't just let anyone in. So I was kind of like surprised, you know, this guy did that. He wrote back and thanked me for the letter. And he concluded with, uh, dear Mr. Webb, uh, your question about how can a group strengthen individuality? Well, frankly, we don't know. Maybe you should join and explain it to us. Well, that was an incredibly, you know, uh, funny remark. So I, I did actually research the group, and, and I did join. Um, and the moment that I read uh, the, their central thesis, which is an essay called Black Magic in Theory and Practice, I was like, that actually explains every phenomena that, that I have experienced. It's logical, it's coherent, it's making no bizarre claims, you know, none of its uh, members can walk through walls or vanish or so on and so forth. And uh, with a certain degree of trepidation, you know, I sent my money in and I found it to be um, an, art, an organization that worked really well and what natural talents I had, which were small, thankfully, um, I was eventually able to rise through the ranks and became high priest for some years. Um, and when I was, you know, bored of doing that, um, I resigned and just have been a regular member now for, for many years, although I've written, you know, five or six books because of my experience there. Um, but yes, yeah, so, well, there's a few things I want to ask uh, coming off of that before um, I'm just looking at my list of questions here. Yes. Um, yeah. So, yeah, there's a few things I want to uh, ask coming off of that. One thing um, is, um, is, is a, uh, Mike Aquino himself um, is, uh, per, is, a, is a figure who I've been aware of for, for a very long time now. And I've read, I've read um, Stephen Flower's book, um, uh, Lords of the Left Hand Path, a few years ago, actually. And um, I can't remember how it was I first came across Aquino. But yes, yeah, so, so I have to I have to ask, what was your what was he like as a as a person to, do, to as a, interpersonally? as a magical instructor what what's it like being in the room of someone like uh, michael aquino well the uh what struck me always struck me most about michael was um he never said anything to impress you know he would, he would just talk about here, here's you know what whatever the topic was that we happen to be be discussing uh he was exceptionally bright um vastly learned human being uh he was funny and he was certainly always able to come up with very apt uh explanations now inside the ritual chamber uh when you would enter into a state of that that link that you have with your uh greater self he was a 
tremendously formidable being. Um, there was never that question of, I am definitely what I am claiming to be. Um, I could, if we saw him in a temple of set ritual, you didn't spot him as high priest because he wasn't wearing like a, a gold robe or horns or, or something. It was some kind of robe as the rest of us. But just his sheer presence was huge. You know, he just sort of exuded being. Um, and the fact that he could explain himself in terms of Plato as opposed to in terms of um, the sort of common, you know, garden variety occultism was fairly impressive to me. Could you, um, I mean, I'm not, not going to ask you to summarize all of the doctrines, both exoteric and esoteric of the Temple of Set in the space of two minutes, but could you, for, because uh, yes, because uh, for listeners who might not be know too much about Setianism, could you give us a little bit to, uh, just to understand what it is, you know, the central thesis of uh, the Temple of Set, who this figure of um, Set is? Um, for you and so on. If you could just give us a little, a little bit more detail about that. All right. Uh, I'm actually working on a uh, book-length um, explanation of the temple for inner traditions now, but I'm going to give you the some of the quick ideas. Uh, Setianism is a left-hand path religion. Now, the religions of the right-hand path, um, Christianity, most forms of Buddhism, most forms of Hinduism, etc., are about either merging with God, less of me, more of you, or in some way being subservient to God. Left-hand path religions are the path of non-union, that you are not seeking to have union with the divine, but that you seek to be, uh, more frankly, a companion of the divine. Now, left-hand path traditions, um, usually emphasize a couple of things. Number one, they emphasize a certain degree of antinomianism. You have to be able to sort of make fun of the symbols of the conventional religion you started with. You have to say, you know, I know this is just a symbol. Now, that particular antinomianism is going to vary from person to person. Um, what might be antinomian to a Mormon it's not be like making fun of the Book of Mormon or something. It's not going to be antinomian to an Orthodox Jew. It would be like that. You know, that, that has no meaning. Um, but we all have a series of things that, that program us. And we want to see how many of those things we can turn into powerless symbols when we want to. The second aspect of left-hand path practice that um, is startling is the practice of magic as opposed to the right-hand path faith, whether it's Wicca, it could be um, you know, Christian science, whatever, where prayer or supplication of a divine entity is a way of making change. Magic is a way of imposing change upon the universe. And it's a way of imposing change by changing your interior model and then causing that to affect the world. Obviously, there's a huge amount of balance factor involved. It's not just like, well, I can do anything I want to because it's magic. Um, someone who's five foot tall will never play uh, basketball professionally. I don't care how many rituals he or she does. Magic is a way both of affecting your life, structuring and unifying the self, which is the more important part, and possibly immortalizing the soul. Um, and we have the same situation that people in the right-hand path have, which is we don't know what lies beyond death. We have thoughts. We may have personal subjective experiences. But we proceed with this, proceeding thinking that it's better to do what we can under our own power than under the grace, the caritas of some divine entity. Set is a very old Egyptian deity. The uh, first deities the Egyptians uh, were interested in were largely uh, Set in Upper Egypt and Harwer, um, Horus, in uh, Lower Egypt. Uh, Harwer became the patron early on of the pharaohs, and it's a perfect example of right-hand path religion. Everything leads up 
to one human, and then that human talks to God, and you have some position down here. Uh, the Setian tribes tended to be a little more anarchic, um, and the idea of the form of afterlife was you went and became a star in the heavens rather than really someone riding in the boat of wrath all the way around the cosmos. Um, Set seems to be the most ancient version of this. And then in our founding, uh, when Dr. Quino did his initial invocation to the Prince of Darkness, the Prince of Darkness showed up as Set. Um, but I wouldn't say that entirely religiously. That was pretty much who, who Quino was expecting after years of study. Uh, revealed religion uh, can only be accepted if it can be tested by rationality both before and after the revelation. Um, otherwise, it's just a subjective construct, of which there, there are many. Um, Setianism is a uh, hierarchical religion, initiatory religion, so that at various levels of practice, you uh, are given new titles. Um, these do not necessarily refer to magical ability. I'm sure there are many second degrees in the temple set. They're as magically gifted as I am, who's a sixth degree. Some of the degrees are also um, administrative within uh, the temple of set. The priesthood of set collectively um, owns its temple, and then its representatives, the Council of Nine, do things like pick the high priest. So, uh, turning slightly more towards uh, to your, your work here, your writing, um, how do how does your your writing intersect with your esoteric interests? Um, are, are your works evangels for Set uh, in some way, or uh... I, I, I would I, I doubt that they're evangels for Set. I do think, however, that I have a respect of, for the unknown that since it's not driven by conventional religion, tends not to be conventional. Uh, I don't tell conventional tales of light versus darkness. Um, I will take on things I think are very frightening, uh, but they're not necessarily conventional evil. Um, most recently, I, had wrote a, I wrote a short story that I think is actually the most um, terrifying thing I've ever written. Uh, about people losing their memory collectively, that we, we that everyone in this society just, just starts forgetting things. And as they forget things, things physically vanish. Like everyone forgets, you know, that there's a, a house down at the end of the block, and then there's not a, there's literally not a house down at the end of the block. Uh, and I've written, I wrote that story, has not seen print yet, but I read it recently at a reading and everyone in the room was just, just, you know, almost gasped at the moment. Now, that's a lucky moment, right? Because a lot of the stuff you write does not have anywhere near that effect. I think that I do a better job at explaining the um, truly weird, the what happens if the rules are what we think they are um, because of my faith. But I don't draw from my faith. And my faith, there's, I don't have any stories set with a, an Egyptian background or a, or a satanic background. Um, and if those things appear in my fiction at all, it's usually somewhat sort of humorously over at the side and not the real explanation. Yes, because one of the things that I've enjoyed most reading you is, um, as opposed to some other horror writers that I've read um who have similar interests and similar pra and engage in uh, esoteric practice as well is that unlike uh unlike them your when your work your your work does a very good job of conveying that atmosphere that um the sensibility i might call it the esoteric sensibility um in a way that's very uncanny and very unnerving and very compelling and uh, other uh, other writers i've read who have attempted to do that would of often end up just um name dropping or they would throw in little uh, like 
quotes or, or little, little dashes here and there which if you've read a little bit about like Julius Avola or something like that you would go oh I recognize that turn of <laughs> phrase I'm smart um which um which yes very clever very clever boy but yeah um and your work doesn't do that which is why I had such a tremendous time reading uh through dark angles um because it is just that um but that, that way of conveying a kind of um a, a sinister gnosis lurking just behind just out of you know out, out of the corner of one's eye and um which is a much more interesting way of dealing with that kind of thing and i think people who have um in some sense seriously engaged with um any form of occultism as a as a spiritual or revelatory practice would probably recognize that much more than um would recognize that sensation that feeling much more than um some kind of oppressive uh, impressive uh, occult pyrotechnics although those can be very very fun and when the occult pyrotechnics do occur in your work they are tremendous um so but one the other but um yes yeah, so and actually to talk specifically more specifically about your work because you were saying there that um your um your your your, uh, your faith your your occult interests when they appear they appear more as as uh, something uh, uh, to the side but one thing that your work de- uh, has de- uh, de- there's, well there's two things they're going to ask one question then the after um one th- that your work um has dealt with a lot is America itself is the um the sense of America as a as a metaphysical landscape of some kind and there's a for ex- and uh, especially with just the history of the united states itself being cast as a as a sequence of very strange events um there's a um there's a, a remark in your story platinum hearts and i have actually i've read that out i think of this, that passage out like three times actually in the last year of this podcast actually so i won't do it here but the uh, the remark about uh thomas jefferson planning his uh, sequence of signal towers across uh, the united states so he can flash messages to his fellow freemasons czar alexander which i think i put the book down for a hot minute there and took a just took a breath before reading on because the that was such a such so potently communicated something i've been interested in uh, for so long that kind of that sense of america as as a place um with with uh with an occult history so what is it what is it about the united states that makes it so ripe for that and gives that kind of weirdness a distinctly american feeling i'm, I'm not i've probably not asked an especially clear question there but well, there, there, there are several factors. Um, the, the first one being the simple founding of America. Uh, the, uh, as British colonies, of course, there's always a lot of conventional history points out that different groups who were not getting along with the Church of England at the time fled to America, which, which is true. America was the, the great place for religious freedom. And so you would have Places like Providence, where you know you had um, you know religious, you know very wild-eyed Protestants of various kinds. Um, one thing that's not generally known, uh, although is quite part of our history, is it early on was also the place that English occultists fled, and some of the tremendous occult libraries uh, from the you know from that era are Yale, where people you know, they, they brought their books with them that would have got them in large amounts of trouble and there's an aesthetic there's an ethic to be honest like an ethic in america uh we're losing it sadly but there used to be the ethic that whatever you did on your own land your property inside was your business um most americans right now will tell you this this makes this this odd statement and this is this is a, just a very american statement which is it don't matter what you believe in as long as you believe in something. Now, <laughs> if you hear that statement anywhere else in the world, people will stare at you like, you know, you're, the, you're an insane person. Whereas in America, we have a, still this big belief that people could do in the privacy of their homes anyway, certain things that are just unique to them. Um, and then, of course, that kind of secrecy and um, sometimes let's say occult fraternity made this a great place for the American Revolution. You know, this one of the things that um, 
inevitably people you know, start noticing is they'll say, hmm, 56 people signed the American Declaration of Independence. 51 of them were Freemasons. That's running a pretty high quantity, not that Freemasonry is deeply occult, but that it was founded by people who could keep a secret, who could be very speculative, and who believed that you needed to have, you know, need to help each other out in kind of a secret way. That's kind of very deep sort of American thinking. Uh, America has always had any number of cults. There's a book. I wasn't actually intending to promote somebody else's book, but it happened to be on my desk, called American Metaphysical Religion. It's by my friend Ronty Pontiac, who actually follows the American metaphysical tradition. Um, and it's just group after group after group. And these people often um, elect people. We, uh, as part of the American cult of celebrity, uh, we're fascinated when a celebrity is a member of some odd group. Um, one of the more famous ones I always think of, just because of the way it sort of played out, is uh, early in Jane Mansfield's career, it was suggested to her by her agent that it would really help out her publicity if she had some kind of strange cultic background. And so she, uh, you know, immediately went over and attended a few episodes, you know, a few episodes, a few meetings of the Church of Satan. And there's various pictures of Anton LaVey, you know, standing and holding a sword, and Jane Mansfield looking bosomy and blonde uh, beneath that. Now, when Jane died, uh, it did so happen that Anton had put a curse on her agent and her agent was driving the car. And, and therefore, Anton, who also never missed a good publicity moment, said, yes, well, it's very sad. I didn't intend to get her, but yes, I put the curse on the agent. Man, that is great for tabloid press. Um, we have a lot of celebrities now that uh, were fascinated because they're a Scientologist or they follow a certain type of yoga um, or they try some pseudo-scientific um, belief. Americans uh, love and are enchanted by this. Also, however, right, it's a two-sided thing. There's a, just a part, part of the American culture that's very anti-occult and very anti-progressive and certainly uh, looks askant anything other than uh, very sort of strict Protestantism. You know, uh, Americans are, are good about holding two completely different opinions in their head at the same time either because we're not very good at critical thinking, which if you think who we've elected as president over the years, you can see we're <laughs> not good at that, or because we are open to having a certain amount of speculative thought. Could you, um, before we carry on, actually, could you explain a little bit about what you mean by American metaphysical religion? Well, there's always been a, uh, an interest in things that are unusual, Let's take uh, like the, you know, probably, probably like anybody's greatest American president. If you ask any American, who are the great presidents? Of course, first they'll mention you know, people of their party that are, that are recent, but then almost always Abraham Lincoln shows up, right? Great, great American. You know, Abraham Lincoln uh, was fascinated with uh, all kinds of occult movements and had uh, Rosicrucians, you know, people that were Rosicrucian, uh, coming to the White House. Um, his wife may have even had seances at the White House because it was, you know, this was not considered to be something separate from the ways of power. Um, there has always been an interest in, in the sort of otherworldliness, uh, even among very... Um, traditional humans, like, you know, take, uh, take uh, John Kennedy, you know, good Catholic president, very serious in the church, very serious in his morals, except when he was, you know, banging Marilyn Monroe. Um, he had that fascination about we have to be on another world. We're going to land on the moon. You know, we're going to do this not because it is easy, but because it is difficult. Uh, that kind of speculation is a big part of American thinking, sometimes at the lowest level where you see 
um, tabloids on UFO aliens or some strange new diet or, you know, was, was Bigfoot seen in Oregon. But sometimes on the highest levels where it includes university professors and philosophers who consider these things seriously, um, Americans have a huge metaphysical side. Uh, it shows up sometimes in like kooky cults in California um, or something like this where we kind of, you know, snigger because people dress oddly, but it's through and through the American psyche. So weird fiction as a as a kind of as a cultural commodity uh, in its own right, you know, weird, you know, weird fiction as paperbacks, as films, and so on. That's something that, um, again, your work seems very uh, you, you seem very interested in with your work. And for you, it seems that um, for you, it seems that twentieth uh, century American science fiction horror. It's something. If it feels like for you, it's something mysterious in its own right. That there's a kind of occult energy or you know running through it you know and i was wondering wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about that what is it about american 20th century science fiction weird fiction that tunes in with that or what or what you find in that well there's a, there's a couple of things that are really fascinating one uh how deeply into popular culture um these images and ideas have seeped um, you can go to a store that sells plush animals for children and you will notice among the plush bunnies and uh, even plush bats, which is getting there a little bit, there's, there's a plush Cthulhu. I mean, to think that something that started out in, you know, in Lovecraft's brain and, you know, sold to weird tales for a penny and a half a word or whatever the rates were, it just soaks into things. Uh, popular TV loves this. X-Files, one of the most popular shows ever in America. Just the average person was fascinated with the idea of cults, with the idea of other dimensions. Um, there would be ideas that would have been very hard for an average human to think, say, at the end of the 19th century, like say other dimensions, that now... Everybody, everywhere, regardless of their color or their education or their economic status, they know these things. These things fascinate. Um, America has always had some, some better than others, right? Uh, the late Phil Dick you know, became deeply obsessed with the idea that we don't know what's real. And that is actually something that, you know, now they're like numerous you know, television shows, movies, uh, comics based on the idea that you know, we can't necessarily trust the reality that's fed us. And that's fused with American politics in all kinds of strange ways because Americans, ever since uh, the time of Nixon, assume their government is lying. Well, we just assume that. And then we assume that maybe one group of government, one, one of the thug groups, right, they're Remember these two thug groups we call political parties is lying less. We assume they're both lying. No one assumes they're telling the truth, but we assume maybe one of these groups is not lying as much. And that's basic level reality. Now, somewhere along the line, this question of political lying and a question of metaphysical lying have fused together in the American psyche. Uh, Probably it came out of 19th century occultism, 19th century English language occultism, sucked up some ideas from India, simplified them, and spewed them back, saying it's all Maya, it's all illusion. And if you begin to put those two things together, that everything we see is illusion, and everything my government tells me is illusion, then suddenly you start thinking, well, how are these two things, and where do they come together? And that's part of the whole American paranoid uh, schizophrenic awareness, you know, and sometimes it's done really well, like say William S. Burroughs or Thomas Bencham. But even if it's done badly, it's something we all enjoy. It's just, you know, it's basic 
is as American as they say is apple pie. So obviously the um, the you know the, uh, the the dark heart of 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 weird fiction um, is is ultimately H.P. Lovecraft, and the thing that uh, the thing that brings um, one of the things that occupies people so much about Lovecraft isn't just the strangeness of his stories, but the peculiarities of the individual himself. It's uh, it's one of those strange things where you're aware you're aware that nobody except for Howard Phillips Lovecraft could have been H.P. Lovecraft, if that makes sense. It had to be someone as off-kilter, so to speak, as as he was to be able to write those stories and to think those thoughts and so on. Um, but he's also a figure that... Um, not just and, and this isn't just in terms of uh, his literary critical appraisal, but he is also... He, himself as an individual is a figure that... Has off, you know, is uh, that uh, occultists and esotericists and so on have often been specifically fixated on, for, you know, for his own, you know, him, him, him himself, and despite um, what I want to ask, basically, you know, despite Lovecraft's protestations to the contrary, him being a good atheist materialist, um, was he making it all up, or was it all basically real? Do you think, on some level? Well- well, Lovecraft had what was going on for him, and, and he, he was, I think, on a conscious level, very much a rational materialist. Um, but he also did something that was very unusual, as he decided that it's very important to pay attention to his dreams. Um, and in the 20th century, a lot of people started looking at dreams. You know, Freud looked at them, Jung looked at them. Lovecraft just looked at his dreams as this is... Um, what my weird fiction aspires to be. Some part of me, even though I am a rational materialist, I do not believe in things of the spirit, math is the ultimate reality, even though it's that, then some part of him produces these lavish productions every night with all kinds of things, such as, you know, if you read of his dreams that he had before he wrote Call of Cthulhu, where she dreamt that he had made the statue of Cthulhu and was trying to sell it to a gallery. Um, that's a really strange thing. I mean, I don't, you know, here's this guy, uh, racist, very much, you know, provincial in his thinking, uh, early part of his life, didn't even travel very much, even in America. Uh, is having dreams that he is creating statues of elder gods and trying to sell them. And then he just he writes the story to, to fulfill, as it were, the dream, to manifest the dream. Um, Lovecraft is almost the pathological example of taking the human psyche and dividing it into two boxes. I've got my materialist, rationalist box here, you say about physics in there, and maybe biology, it's kind of pushing a little bit. And then I have this symbolic, weird, strange, everything left in my psyche box. And I'm going to keep pushing them apart. But this part keeps looking at that part and being fascinated. And that's why you would see if some of Lovecraft's imitators who did not have that kind of uh, imbalance in their lives, they, they couldn't pull it off. You take August Darrell, a good Catholic man, strong in his church. He tries to write uh, Lovecraftian fiction, you know, and all he can come up with is that there are some good entities and some bad entities, blah, 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 mankind is beloved, and we are safe. And you don't remember any of his stories. Oh, he kept all of Lovecraft stuff in print, which is a huge effort, given the fact that Lovecraft couldn't write a sentence. Great, great imagination, terrible writer. Um, we, of course, he, he made it up, but he made up something better, which was, it is worthwhile to examine the contents of our psyche, not with some model, not with the model of Freud or Jung or some other approach like that, but just seeing what the hell is there and treating that as just as interesting as what you might find at the bottom of the sea or in the furthest reaches of outer space. Yeah, uh, the 
that's something that has been commented on by, for example, Michelle Well uh, Michelle Welbeck in his uh, the only good book Welbeck ever wrote, um, his book on uh, Lovecraft, um, where he where he where he precisely comments on the when Lovecraft is describing an elder thing, um, he gives you the dimensions and numbers of it. You know, he talks about the uh, I can't remember if he uses Imperial. Well, it was Lovecraft, of course, he used Imperial, not metric. But you know, he talks about you know sort of like uh, how many sort of like uh, apes of an inch uh, a proboscis is and so on. And because for love, you know, for Lovecraft, you know, the scientific method is itself a source of terror because it, it because it, it, it you know it desacralizes the world it desacralizes uh the human being uh this was always the thing that made made love that makes that uh, when you when you first discover lovecraft as a kid one the thing the thing that makes it so terrifying is that um it doesn't fold unlike for example a werewolf or a vampire it doesn't fold into a predetermined pre-existing moral universe or ethical symbolic universe it's something that refuses that it refuses that kind of categorization or reduction to uh, to symbolism cthulhu is um cthulhu isn't the uh um you know, Cthulhu isn't a symbol for um, um, political oppression by the Roman Empire or something like that. Cthulhu is just, you know, Cthulhu is a, is an immortal being composed of matter that vibrates in a different frequency to ordinary matter, and uh, and so on. You know, that that's what, what Cthulhu is. That's you know, that's what these things are. That that that, uh, that Lovecraft produced horror appropriate for for a desacralized world for the uh, for the scientific age, and. Uh, Yes, though you are quite right about his qualities as a writer, and uh, this is something I think I commented on on another podcast recently. That uh, uh, not that I haven't read Lovecraft for a very, very, very long time, and I read him at the appropriate time to read him, which is when you were like thirteen, fourteen. That's when you read Lovecraft. Very lo- last year, I um, read a load of uh, Arthur Macken, which uh, I'd been meaning to do for a long time, and one. Of the two things that struck me most about that one was Macanese, one of the great unsung stylists of um of English literature like just genuinely a superb a tremendous a tremendous descriptive writer and secondly was the realization I would never be able to read Lovecraft again now anyway because I realized he's just trying to do this a tr- he's attempting to do Arthur Macken and he can't do Macken uh, because only only Macken could do Macken, and Lovecraft was sadly not Macken. He was Lovecraft. Ah, dearie me. Um, moving swiftly onwards. So to return to to return to the subject of the dark arts. Um, I know that you have indeed written a whole book on this recently, which you very kindly sent to me uh, before this interview. But um, how can black magic make our listeners a little bit happier tomorrow morning. Yeah, you know, what what can it what can it do for you? What why is it something that uh, maybe not for everybody, but for those inclined, why is it something that you should pursue? In your opinion, well, the, a, a black magical exercise, which does not need to begin with invoking Satan or Seth or you know, any number of dark deities, but the exercise of just saying I am here entirely for my own purpose um, can be very energizing. And, you know, if uh, someone wanted to, to do this with no prior background, I would suggest that you choose uh, a time at night because night is uh, psychologically very helpful for this. Go take a walk, look up at the stars, and at some point, let all your thoughts from the day die down. You worry about what your boss wants or, you know, what you need to buy your, your girlfriend for a treat or something and look up toward the stars. Uh, if you want, look toward the Big Dipper. That's the constellation uh, the Egyptians associated with Sam. And just say something like, in your own words, just speak aloud. Be brave enough to do this. I call upon the darkest parts of myself to show me what I really want. Just be quiet. Very likely, nothing particularly will rush into your mind immediately. But in the next few days, you will begin to be aware of some parts of yourself you weren't aware of before. You have not called up a demon. You have not invoked a god. 
you have literally just given permission to parts of your psyche to say, I'm going to try to stop censoring you. And let's see what that means. You know, and, and if, they, if you find that very disturbing, you know, you know, pray and, you know, splash yourself in holy water, whatever, it will make that go away. But, but what will probably happen is either more vibrant dreams or just a sense that there may be more to you than you think there is. Um, the magician, both uh, the white magician and the black magician, becomes very aware that there's a lot more to ourselves than, than we think. And we are conditioned to not pay attention to those things. Um, just so we can basically be focused and, and do all the things we need to do uh, to support ourselves and keep the world going. Um, because you don't want someone, you know, driving a car, seeing a stop sign to consider philosophically, what does it mean to stop? What you want for them to hit the brake on their car. Uh, so we, we all have this trance state we walk around in that we don't, uh, don't think deeply. Um, challenge yourself. And if you can't go out and view the stars, um, sit in an almost dark room and say the same thing to your mirror. And the reason I urge that you speak is it takes a small amount of courage to speak aloud that you'll never get if you just sit there and think real hard. And once you notice that, then you can probably begin to understand all the things then that occultists do to get to some parts of themselves. Something interesting I've noticed in how you have talked about your relationship with the Temple of Set yeah, and Setianism and so on is you've used words like uh, faith to describe it. And um, and so what, so when when does magic end and religion begin and when you know in the reverse when does religion end and magic begin because all i mean all healthy religions at least and not all religions are healthy or not all dispensations of every religion are healthy uh in my opinion at least as a very very uh high church anglican uh or episcopalian in, in american english um religion is always at its best when it's when it involves uh the jangling of talismans and the chanting of uh words of uh protection and, and evocation no matter what it is so where 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 is the boundary for you, where, where does it become? Where, where, what is the difference between magic and a religion? Well, I think of magic as any time the uh, human uses his or her psyche to explore the unknown or to bring order to the unknown. And therefore, I would see a lot of things that uh, a Christian might call faith, you know, like a, a prayer to heal someone, I would see that as magic, you know, uh, I would see it as white magic, because rather than, you know, taking responsibility yourself for it, you're attributing it to, to someone you've created in your mind. Magic uh, has always been part of the human equation. It was the Victorians, particularly Fraser with his, you know, the, the golden bow and, and things that follow, they wanted to make magic into to very like primitive science, like it's not good science. Magic is just a way of discussing things with the, the universe, um, as is religion. I would find very little difference between the two, but then that's, again, I'm, you know, I'm looking at this from a left-hand path background, probably quite frightening to my, my right-hand path um, friends and relatives. Magic is essential and magic is in everybody you take someone who says i don't believe in magic you meet someone that's i'm totally mature so i don't believe in it at all and you know and then you'll see them 10 minutes later praying for a copy machine to work you know they're literally please let this happen i'm like who, who are you talking to because that's just part of what we are we all already interact with the universe that way uh the magician then wants to discover how to do this better for him or herself. And of course, you want to do the most effective ways to do things. For example, if uh, I have a uh, pain in my body, I will certainly say certain mantras to tune down the pain, but that does not keep me from calling my physician saying, hey, can you see me about this? Or, you know, and following whatever their leads are. 
because science works better in most aspects of changing my body, although part of changing the psyche is my own magical work. Every human now needs to find out that perfect blend of science, magic, religious practice, should they want it, or art, which is another way to take the psyche and have it express itself. Um, some societies were better at this. The Egyptians always thought that the way you did everything was magic, but they thanked the gods for magic. There are numerous litanies of wreck who began thanking him, thank you for giving us Heka, or giving us magic to blunt the terrors of life. Um, Christianity liked to strip magic out, put it to the side and make it sort of the bad thing, whereas they're in charge of the good thing. Um, probably not a useful point of view for a 21st century thinker. Uh, nor should they think that their magical approaches are any better than scientific or philosophical approaches, but just learn what works best in what areas of their lives. So we're coming up to we're coming up to the hour mark. Um, I, think office, uh, I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know if you're pressed for time. If you have uh, other other business, other important business of, on this plane or another uh, to attend to today, but we have a couple more things I wanted to. Uh, okay, uh, ask probably you. probably by about say ten minutes from now, I need to go, but I'm good right now. Oh, perfect. Yeah. So, well, the, well I had the uh, the last two things I wanted to ask, which maybe sort of like. Uh, uh, well, firstly, I just wanted to ask re what because this is always an interesting question. What are you reading at the moment? Uh, currently, I'm reading a trilogy of novels by a friend of mine named Peter Lavenda. Um, oh, yes, I'm aware, I'm aware with, uh, of Lavenda's work, yes. You know, That's his, his, uh, his, the Lovecraft love, code that Don just uh, held up to the camera. Dunwich and the Starry Wisdom. Um, I had been aware of Lavenda's nonfiction for years and uh, had not... Uh, not read a fiction until a, a mutual friend said, no, that's, you know, some of that stuff is really pretty good. So I, I, I have gone and uh, begun to read that. I, I just finished a novel he wrote called The Black Pollock, an incel grimoire. It's just amazing. But a five-star review on, uh, on Amazon for it. He, he's an interesting fellow. Um, he also completely believes in the reality of magic, just thinks it's something you shouldn't mess around with. Mm. He kind of views this, you know, yes, it's very important that building has, you know, high voltage going in it. Now I'm not going to go over and put my hands on those wires. <laughs> I've read um, Lavender, and um, this is, again, this is something I've referred to on other podcasts. I've read uh, Lavender's book, um, The Dark Lord, uh, Lovecraft and Kenneth Grant of a Typhonian Tradition, which is, uh, and then foolishly, uh, I didn't keep hold of my copy of it when I had a, a clear out of my books. And uh, I still regret regret the decision. I just need, I would just need to spend 30 quid on getting a, sourcing another copy of it because it's a fascinating book. Much easier to read than Kenneth Grant's own books as well, which are, uh, which I have which i do have i have all of them except for the ninth gate actually i've been collecting them as they've been reissued i'm a terrible christian you see um but i do largely ha have them almost for talismanic purposes because they're such beautiful this also like uh broken pieces of the night uh as it were just aesthetically tremendous books um the kind of uh, the ever typhonian trilogy books lovely to just wander into but i do read them largely uh as if they were you know as weird fiction to be honest but yes i don't know maybe i'll try and get peter lavender on at some point uh <laughs> um so my fi my final question is um what are you working on at the moment? What can we? What can we? Uh, I mean, you. Well, you've you've referred to you know, writing a book length, uh, a, a book length book, a book, uh, a book length piece on uh, the Temple of Set. But what? Uh, what? What can we look forward to uh, in the near future? Uh, well, in addition to to the book length book length piece on the Temple of Set, uh, I am trying and putting together some notes for writing a novel about. Um, the Wandering Jew, Matthew, you know, the, the figure that's known by various names, like Matthew Strike God. And so far, I had this really interesting idea of what if there is, in fact, this immortal uh, man who, who uh, cursed or blessed by Jesus to, to be immortal. Uh, what if the way he has uh, maintained himself 
the last few hundred years is uh, writing fiction. And so I'm going to write, I'm hoping to write this book where a book collector suddenly notices that there's this kind of obscure pulp author that's still, um, still alive and figures out, hey, this guy has to be really old and then tracks him down and discovers, in fact, that he's immortal. But um, I haven't quite gotten the shape of that one yet, although I'm having some fun sort of writing the pieces of, you know, what, what would this guy be writing in 1920 and in 1940 and 1960 and trying to hit the styles of the times. Mm. And something that, uh, like, like I've uh, suggested already, something that I very much enjoyed in what I've read of your work is your... Uh, uh, is your genre learning, so to speak, uh, that that you that you have uh, uh, you have what you have waded through uh, the pulp uh, for us, so we don't have to. But at the same time, again, like your cult knowledge, you don't wear you know don't wear it on your sleeve in a way to uh, in a way to show off. It's just it adds a again it, it and this is um, what I was getting at with that question actually. It kind of adds to you know sort of like the the the, the physical stuffness of like science fiction memorabilia almost just at, um is something there that kind of casts to get shadow of your work but not being not being something that uh is brought into the foreground to show again just show if your uh your knowledge of the twilight zone or something something like that um i will ask actually i'll ask one one more question but then i shall then uh, i shall let you go and um answer this however you like talking about whatever you're comfortable about but um you know having you know someone who has spent you know a long time dealing with these things with these uh with, with the occult with the esoteric with the magical what is the most the most profound or the most the most profound moments you've had with that the moment that made you more than anything else really kind of sit up in your chair and go this is real this is really real well i, I have one that that um is, and it's a scholarly thing, so it's, you know, it's almost like this Lovecraftian uh, moment. When um, Dr. Quino founded the uh, Temple set, he, he had a channeled document, the Book of Coming Forth by Night, you know, in some way similar to like Crowley's Book of the Law. Uh, and in the Book of Coming Forth by Night, he had included uh, a few Egyptian quotations that, that, are, that are easy to identify. He wasn't trying to hide them, like, you know, I got this from this book, and and at one point uh, in, in the book, he, he had sat, was speaking to him and said, uh, made reference to his first high priest, Mahin Petah. And then, you know, Aquino then went and looked through literature for this for, 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 for decades, right? And just assumed that either just, you know, just, it's just a moment of his own inspiration or it's not someone. And uh, just before, just, just slightly before Michael's death, uh, I was going to quote something from the book of coming forth by night and being very lazy. I decided not to get it from my computer because there's all these bootleg copies of it. I just put in Mahin Pata and I got like 10 listings of this and one listing of an Egyptological uh, inventory. And I found that in fact, this figure, the high priest of Set, was the sister of Per Ibsen and exists only because of one signet ring bearing her name. But Per Ibsen, founder of the Second Dynasty, the only pharaoh that called himself the Living Set, his sister would be the High Priestess of Set. And this thing, which had always been uh, just a throwaway line in a cult document, I discovered had been uh, waiting for me three thousand five hundred years to to show up, and I, I found and traced down the ring and so forth. So that might be the the one moment. Um, but the, yeah, the, the stuffness, as you say, the physicality of things is one of the great ways to appreciate the world. And, and I'm going to leave you with a, a book story that, you know, I, I know you will appreciate, and then I will, will take my leave. Many years ago, I met Forrest Ackerman, the guy that, uh, among other things, uh, created the phrase sci-fi. I'm a huge, huge collector. And all my life, I heard what a huge collector he was. And when I finally, when the first time I went to his home, the Acker Mansion in Hollywood, um, 
you know, he opened the door and he said, yeah, what are you getting carried on? I said, well, I really like Lovecraft. So he says, I got a postcard from Lovecraft. You want to see it? And I said, yeah, walk in. Now I'm expecting the inside of this house to be pristine and organized. And it's just got, it's just got piles of shit, you know, all around. And he goes over to a desk and he's like throwing things around. And I'm like, oh, this is, you know, not, not what I was expecting. And I, I walked over and was examining some paintings on a wall by the great fantasy illustrator, Hannes Bach. And suddenly, someone poked me in the back with a book. And I turned around, and there's Forrest. He's holding this little book, which he's you know, just poked me in the back with. And he hands it to me. And I'm like, oh, so I opened it up. It's Dracula. It's a first edition Dracula. It's a signed first edition Dracula. Talk about the stuffness of things, right? The physicality. And he looked at me and said, uh, and this is why I knew I would love Forrest Ackerman all my life. He says, that's nothing. There's five of those. Mine's special. Look at the next page. I turn the next page, and there's two lines of signatures. Max Schreck, Bella Lagosi, Carlos Villaras. Been down a ways away. Christopher, all of them. Every single one of them. And he took the book from me. And I'll remember this. Hell, I remember it's my next incarnation. He took the book from me, shoved it into a shelf, and says, Come on, I got things to show you. <laughs> and then for the next three hours, my jaw was kind of like hanging here because there were several other things. But yeah, that physicality, that moment that these things of the mind, these things of dreams, we can hold them in our hands, that is a very, very special moment. That is a religious moment that transcends most other religious moments. So maybe on that I should end today's symposium, but I've really, really enjoyed this. Uh, my, my camera, of course, as I said earlier, isn't working, unfortunately, so you couldn't see how my jaw did drop uh, with that, with the reveal. Um, bloody hell. Well, Don, thank you so 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 much for coming on to weird signal i have been a fan of your work for for a good few years now and it has been it was yeah it was and uh, it was great it was it was such a lovely lovely moment when i got that email from you uh a couple of months ago saying yeah sure let's do it right away yeah um so yeah thank you thank you ever so much um and uh, yeah we do have um we do have a sign off we have a sign off on the podcast which we always use um where because normally you do this with another person where one of us says stay weird and the other says keep it signal uh if i say stay weird could you please say keep it signal mm -hmm. well uh again thank you one more time don and uh all that's left for me to say is stay weird keep it signal keep it signal and hail satan thank you very much all right. And yeah, and, and let me know when this is up, and I will, you know, mention it to like, you know, ten thousand of my friends. Oh, please do, please do. <laughs> All right, take care. Bye bye. And bye, -bye.